Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday november 21st 2008 episode 104 comes to you from studio b in beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes of radio joe the z-man is at the ria convention this week but the wingman chris boizel is still here with us at the controls Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Chris. Today's segments will include the microband trivia question. We've got a Radio Joe highlight show with clips and commentary from the archives. And we're going to have Glenn Fellman with the IE Connections, What's News? We're going to have Dr. Dieter with the Industrial Hygiene Corner, what we'll call the IH Corner. And then we'll fin- uh, finish things up with the Roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IEQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's go to the microband trivia question. Today's microband trivia question was sent in by uh, my co-host, the Z-Man. It's based upon a sports highlight which occurred in Pittsburgh 36 years ago and is known as Franco Harris' Immaculate Reception. 22 seconds remaining. And Bradshaw is back and looking again. Bradshaw running out of the pocket, looking for somebody to throw to, fires it downfield, and there's a collision. Oh, it brings back memories. What rule from the NFL rule book allowed that play to stand? So the question for this week is, what rule from the NFL rule book allowed the immaculate reception play to stand? You can go to the iaqradio.com website, go to the trivia question link, and answer the question there, and we'll send out your prize. Okay, before we get started today... Unfortunately, IAQ Radio is sad to report that earlier this week, the Environmental Remediation and Insurance uh, Repair Industries lost a giant of a man, Michael O'Reilly. Michael O'Reilly was a kind, caring, generous, and sharing man. Mike O'Reilly will be deeply missed by his friends, colleagues, and family. IAQ Radio and our listeners are fortunate that we had the opportunity to interview Mike O'Reilly prior to his passing.
Okay, in honor of uh, Mike, we, uh, I went back through the archives and I found a, a good clip from Mike. And uh, what, what I'd like to do this week is start my little uh, highlight show with a highlight from our interview with Mike, and then we'll finish the same way. Let's start with that, Chris. I'll give you an example of, you know, uh, engineering controls as an asbestos abatement contractor who's been in it for a while understands it as opposed to a lot of uh, uh, mold contractors that we see or we come in behind to do a, a cleanup. Uh, we, you know, we at Tradewinds, as, as well as other people, use negative air machines to filter um, and and there's a, a real misconception uh, in the industry in the field that that if you're changing uh, you're doing air changes four times or six times an hour that you're filtering out all the air in your your work area where you're probably not filtering 60% of the air in your work area but if you position uh, your your machines in such a manner. Uh, and tested, smoke tested. The the you can actually accomplish two things. Not only do you create negative, you're actually getting uh, any of the particulate to uh, to your machine. So you're you're filtering. And and uh, again, if you focus on these things, clearance becomes really pretty simple. That's a great clip from Mike, and a great tip as well. And something that more and more people are starting to recognize is the positioning of your air filtration devices, smoke testing, and ensuring that you are actually clearing all the air from especially larger work areas. But then again, let's not forget in residential areas, we have a lot of uh, smaller rooms and uh, walls and divisions. So I think that was a great tip. We'll have another one at the end. This is our first experiment with going back through the archives and putting together some highlight clips with a little commentary. We're going to start today by going back to shows one through five, and uh, we'll pull up some highlights, look at how things may have changed or if they've stayed the same. And uh, we also have some more recent clips to mix in with uh, some of the old. We, uh, so let's go, Chris, uh, to the first one, which was, uh, let's see, all the way back to show one. And this was a clip with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Right now, the, you know, the hot topic is mold. Yep. And um, many people refer to it as toxic mold, which we would like to, I, I would like to at least get people away from using that terminology because as Dietrich here can explain, anything can be toxic. So we want to get away from the use of just toxic mold and uh, black mold and just discuss the fact that too much of anything can be bad. Oh, absolutely. It's the dose that kills. It's not uh, uh, the, the chemical. Yeah. Uh, too much of table salt can kill you. Uh, too much, if you drink distilled water faster than you can eliminate it, and you read that sometimes during the summer when little kids have drinking contests, all of a sudden people are dead from drinking water that nobody thinks of as being toxic. It's the dose that kills. This principle has been known for 500 years, and uh, it's not the poison, it is the dose. Too much of anything is not good for you, and it doesn't matter what it is. Now, when, when we talk about the dose that kills, is there individual susceptibility with respect to toxicity, or would we be talking about something other than toxicity when we add individual susceptibility into the uh, picture. Well, you touched on probably one of the most difficult top, uh, topics in this whole uh, field. Yeah, sure. Uh, individual susceptibility is, is of, of concern, and uh, some people react to certain things for whatever reason. Uh, ask an allergist, why does somebody react to it and somebody else doesn't? Um, that is one of the most difficult, difficult things to study and to explain and to get a handle on. So that is certainly another aspect that is out there. And we have seen that in certain environments, certain people reacted, others didn't react. Um, in fact, in indoor environment, we, we say that if 80% if of people in an office building are happy, this is kind of good. We, are, we, we discriminate, unfortunately, against these other 20%. Uh, 
And there may be in these other 20%, maybe somebody who cannot uh, work in an environment for whatever reason. Like I sometimes say, some people got dealt a very bad hand on the day they were born with certain deficiencies. And uh, yeah, what are we going to do with those people? That is one of the most difficult questions to answer. Well, since then, we've been tackling that issue, and we've had quite a few excellent guests talking about both the uh, dose response and also individual susceptibility. We're in the middle of a new series with Dr. Wow. We'll be uh, doing a segment later on industrial hygiene and why industrial hygiene concepts are so important in investigating indoor environmental quality issues. We've also had people on uh, both sides of the uh, spectrum with respect to multiple chemical sensitivity and other issues. Uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker was on. We had David Governo, Governo on, and we'll have a clip from him in a little bit. Before we get to that, though, let's go back to show number two. Our next clip comes from show number two. We had a, a guest on early on in the uh, series here, Nicholas Money, a PhD mycologist who had uh, written a book and still available, Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores. When we first looked at the title, it was, uh, you know, this looks a little, uh, a little like the uh, scary, frightening type stuff. But when we actually read the book, we had to have Nick on. And I've got a clip on uh, Nick from, let's see, back on show two. You know, whether or not anyone's ever told you this or not, but you really have a gift for taking things that are pretty technical and putting them into a term that just any reader, you know, can understand. You know, some of the things that I found fascinating uh, in the book, one thing in particular, and I don't remember ever hearing this before, and Joe remembered hearing it, but he wasn't sure exactly where he heard it, was the fact of, that black mold utilizes a substance known as melanin as a sunscreen. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and there's a lot of these, these dark pigmented fungi that, that use, it's not really one compound, there's a whole series of different melanins. I mean, we have melanin in our own skin, it's a somewhat different chemical, but the fungi, or many of them actually do use this as a sunscreen, and they'll actually use it as a natural barrier to, to, other, to, to different substances too. It's a, it's a, it's a protective structure that, that forms within the cell wall of these, these dark pigmented fungi, including stachybotrys. Hmm. You know, a quote from your book, high safe function as microscopic mining devices probing, penetrating, and thoroughly permeate solid materials and extract nutrients in their path. That's kind of a new way for me to look at my athlete's foot anyway. Yeah, and that's certainly what, it, what it's doing. I was just looking at some images the other day, actually, um, of, of fungi penetrating skin and nails, and it, it's really interesting to look at them forming these burrows within, within our own tissues. It's uh, uh, alarming, I guess, certainly if it's your own tissues that these things are, are growing within. As the interview went on, we uh, started to talk to uh, Dr. Money about some other issues, and one that he had some concerns about were cell fragments from mold spores and how many of these cell fragments there may be out there and also uh, the, I guess, the, the surface area of these cell fragments and how they may be contributing to some of the indoor air quality concerns we hear about. And uh, I'd like to play that segment and then what we'll do is we'll go to show three and have Dr. Harriet Burge comment on the same thing. You know, one of the things I think was interesting is, you know, we all know that there's two scoops of raisins in a box of raisin bran. I never realized that for every spore that was out there, there could be as many as 300 cell fragments floating around. Yeah, that's, that's the, the result of some really interesting work in the last few, few years that um, when you actually do, do spore counts, so based upon indoor air sampling, you're only looking at a relatively small fraction of the number of particles that might be present in the, in the air because when you, when you pass air over a fungal colony, so something growing on a, on a surface, on drywall, for example, it seems, at least according to these studies, that these smaller particles are also getting, getting into the air. And of course, it's possible that, that, that those particles can get into the uh, uh, nasal passages and, uh, and the lungs if um, people are in, in, the, uh, in that location. You know, one of the interesting things I thought also in the book was the fact that um, you brought up this theory, and I, I think it may be more than a theory, because in the book you were talking about 
uh, discussing this with one of your business colleagues was the fact that certain insects could actually transport mold, including stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a poss possibility, although there's no um, really clear evidence for this at this, this point. Um, but it, it relates to this wider issue of actually how stachybotrys gets around. So this is the mold that, that um, is most interesting, at least in the courtroom. Uh, and yet it forms these big spores, and they they're formed in these sticky heads. And they're not easily aerosolized. They don't get airborne very easily um, because they're sticky and because they're heavy relatively speaking. And, and so this is an interesting issue about sort of the, the ecology of the indoor environment and actually how these molds get around, or specifically how stachybotrys gets around, because it's, it's kind of a sluggish thing, not well designed for, for, for moving around in the air. You know, Nick was a fascinating guest, and we have another clip from him that we may bring back on a little bit later. But before we do, let's go up to show number three. We had Harriet Burge, PhD, currently with MLab, formerly with uh, Harvard Public Graduate School of Public Health. Harriet doesn't need much of an introduction. She's considered to be one of the uh, most world-renowned mycologists and uh, indoor air quality specialists in the country. And we asked her her opinion about these cell fragments. I listened to last week's show, actually. Oh, great, great, yeah. great. Well, I, I was very uh, curious about a statement he made about cell fragments and the fact that spores can break into many of these cell fragments. I have begun to see discussion of this issue in other areas, like on some of the chat boards, etc. And I'm wondering if uh, maybe you could help us a little bit with understanding, first of all, how, how do we measure these cell fragments, and how do we know they exist? Well, if you're a good microscopist, and if you do spore trap sampling, you can see occasionally, you can see cell fragments. Um, I think it's a, um, an exaggeration to say that this happens a lot. Fungal spores are really quite strong little guys, and they don't break up easily. Um, if you, if you take a wall with stachybotrys on it, for example, and scrub it really hard, you will break some of the spores, and you'll see broken pieces of the spores on a spore trap sample. Are there little teeny tiny pieces that we're missing? Uh, probably, although we've done some work with allergens um, that are not attached to fungal spores, and a very minute fraction of the airborne allergen is not attached to intact spores. And if you count spores and correlate four counts with allergen concentrations in the air, uh, you get a very close correlation, which indicates to me that the majority of at least the allergen is actually present on the spores themselves and not in these fragments. But I don't deny that the fragments exist. Um, actually, with grass pollen, it's been beautifully illustrated that grass allergens, grass pollen allergens, are borne often on very small pieces. But there's a really logical um, logical reason for that. And with the fungal spores, it's just been my experience that they don't break up all that easily. But, you know, he, he, they, they certainly do, and you can certainly find them, uh, find the, the, the evidence in the air. It's just, I think, not going to be the answer. When I say that there aren't enough stachybotry spores in the air, people say to me, oh, well, you're not thinking about all the fragments. Well, I am thinking about the fragments. Um, I think they're probably there, but not in high enough concentrations to be the answer to this, to this difficult question. I see. And how big are these fragments? I'm just curious. Of the... Well, I don't think anybody knows. We were, we were looking for very, very small ones, submicron fragments, fragments that were less than one micron in diameter. And we found some. We found some allergen activity. Now, again, we were measuring allergens, and uh, we're not, not uh, looking at the fragments. You really couldn't very well look at tiny fragments like that and know what they are. Um, we found a very, very small amount of, um, of um, allergen associated with those fragments. So um, they can be very, very tiny, but I still don't think that they're an important source for exposure that's causing that would answer the questions that people have today. And those questions still exist. We have seen quite a bit of discussion of the issue, even over the last couple of years, but I haven't seen a great deal of research. If anybody out there is aware of any or has anybody that can come in and contribute to the discussion, please let us know. Before we uh, move on to our IH segment, uh, 
we're going to do one more clip that kind of sums up, I think, both Dr. Burge and Dr. Money's feelings about the stachybotrys issue. Well, the last thing that I had was a um, kind of interesting section of the book where you compared uh, Stachybotrys versus Staphylococcus aureus, and I hope I got the pronunciation right with my mycologist on the line. Could you uh, maybe review a little bit about what you wrote on those two organisms? Yeah, I think there was um, so there was there was an interesting study um, where, where they compared the um, the total number of, of of injuries that could be tracked to stachybotrys exposure, and then compared that to um, the, the effects of other microorganisms. Okay, and the point there of that study was to suggest that even in sort of the worst case scenario that these these cases of lung bleeding in in Cleveland had been caused by stachybotrys that there are plenty of other microorganisms that that we're, we're exposed to that cause you know far greater injury and far more deaths each year and so the the point of that study was to really show that the 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 media frenzy then surrounding the ballot case was really was a frenzy and it was something that 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 really was uh, you know, the concern about indoor molds is really out of control, I think, for a while. And I do think that things have settled down more at this this point. Um, there seems to be a more measured approach to dealing with indoor indoor mold and indoor mold problems. And um, so I think that's uh, to the industry's credit that, that, we, that we've gotten to this position today. And we came full circle back in the, uh, I'd say in the last month, we had a really good discussion uh, with uh, Don Weeks about the uh, Green Book and the uh, new AIHA Green Book, and there's an excellent discussion in the front end of that about the the problems with uh, pulmonary hemorrhage in infants, and uh, the, the discussion goes on. So I think we've done a good job as an industry of trying to calm down some of the irrational fears that may have existed, but to still not totally ignore the issue. What I'd like to do now is go to what we're uh, going to call our IH corner, the industrial hygiene corner. Let's bring in Dr. Dieter Wow and say hello and do us today's segment. Good day, Dieter. How are you? Hello, Dieter. We may have lost Dieter. Hello? There he is. All right. Oh. Hello, Dieter. Hi there. Let me jump over to the other phone over here. Okay. We turn that one off. That should be better with the sound, That's right? That's excellent. In fact, it's a little strong. Very good. But, uh, Dieter, let's go with today's IH Corner. I figured this would be a good time. We had a couple of mycologists in, and, and we know right. that you know we kind of combine mycology, industrial hygiene, building sciences when we're uh, looking at indoor environmental quality issues. And, and last week we did a show on this, and uh, one of the questions since I wasn't here that I wanted to ask is, how do the principles of industrial hygiene assist people with doing indoor environmental quality investigations? Well, they certainly are interconnected, and very much so. By the way, it's it's amazing. I listen to myself speak. I speak with a terrible German accent. <laughs> I think Sorry, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm living with this one for the last 45 years in Pittsburgh. It's not going to change. And no, anyway, but uh, seriously, I, I think the techniques which have been developed over the last, let's say, approximately 60 or so years, we can argue maybe 70 years, the principles that were used to measure air contaminants in environments in which people are living, whether they are workers or at home or outdoors, you know, the EPA takes care of that, OSHA takes care of the workers. And we really don't have an agency that, uh, and maybe good so, uh, controls our homes. Um, but the, the principles that are used to to identify, to characterize these environments are uh, uh, very, very close to each other. Uh, in industrial hygiene, when I was a student in the late 60s uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, um, we were taught that 
industrial hygiene is the art and science of recognition, evaluation, and control of the environment. My former uh, uh, teacher, Dr. Korn, later on the director of OSHA, the uh, assistant secretary of labor, he added anticipation. And I think that those are still, even though they have been misused, they are still good um, principles with which we can start to uh, uh, look at environments. So recognition, and evaluation, control, and maybe add... Control and, and anticipation. It's almost, I think that's and word for word, the name of the Green Book. Go ahead, Dieter, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> somebody took it, and that's a, that is okay. But uh, look at it. It doesn't matter where you are. All of our efforts are there to protect people. I mean, this is our number one goal. There's no question about that. Whether they are in coal mines, whether they are in chemical plants, in steel plants, aluminum plants, or whether they are at home. We got to, uh, we got to fingerprint the environment, and we have wonderful techniques today. When I was in this field, when I started in this field as a student, my, we had to make our own instruments with which to measure. And uh, today you can buy black boxes and so on and, um, and, and, and use those. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, 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 you just got to know what your black box is telling you about the environment. And that's something we so, talked about this morning. It was that, you know, before you even go to the black box, you, you had a process that you wanted to talk about, I think, as, as far as... Well, yes. Okay. You know, you, you, you got to know what you... Yeah, people ask me, can you come and do something? I said, what's the objective? Why do you want to do it? You know, I can go in my neighbor's house and measure the air, and uh, nobody complains. <laughs> There's nothing there. Can I do it? Sure, I can do it. It's useless. It's it's a waste of time and money. So, like I said, these these principles of of using calibrated instruments, of keeping good records of time and so on, uh, the chain of custody, uh, having the right um, laboratory which is analyzing our um, our samples. Uh, these are all important things, and it doesn't matter whether you took the sample in a coal mine or whether you took it at home in your living room. It doesn't matter, or in your wet basement or in the attic or something like that. Okay. And before we take the sample, what's the principles behind industrial hygiene that lead us to whether we take them or not even, I guess? Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, I can go out right now in my backyard and, and measure for CO2, carbon monoxide, uh, uh, volatile organic uh, chemicals, uh, particulate matter, and all of that. What am I doing? Absolutely nothing. It will not change. I, there's very little I can do about it. We have uh, air pollution monitoring stations in Pittsburgh and in many other uh, cities too, but uh, that would be a waste of time. Uh, uh, there, there is not, nothing really that I would expect over there. Now, if I get, you know, if I start to get... Uh, 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 complaints or people have eye or nose and throat irritation or something like that. Now, that is a completely different uh, story. If I get called in to measure lead, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read on lead and lead exposures and how to measure lead. I've done that for many, many years. But when I started that first, I went to the documentation of the threshold limit values, the TLVs, which are published by the... Um, ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, and they have the documentation, which is a very, very valuable uh, uh, source. I don't look at the number. I look at the background on how we, uh, uh, how we got to that number. Why was a threshold limit value or a permissible exposure limit set at 100 ppm? Why was that? Well, you don't get that from the number. You've got to go to the documentation. And I'm looking at my bookshelf over here at three volumes of the documentation uh, that takes up about uh, 10 inches of uh, space. I think they are available today. Of course, they are available somehow on a CD, but I still use the old one. I like printed stuff. Now, I remember so, from, yeah. from last week you had talked about that your most important tools were your eyes and your nose, I, I believe it was. So you, oh. you get this complaint about, oh, you know, eye, ear, nose, throat irritation. What's the steps, you know? I, absolutely. I mean, I, that it, it's so obvious I forgot to mention it today again. But sure, certainly. 
like I said, we all have an impression of if you go into a supermarket, if you go into a restaurant, if you go into a workplace, the minute you walk through the door, you kind of get an impression. Say, hey, is this play, uh, is, is the housekeeping all right? Is the place clean? Uh, yeah, forget about going to the toilet and, 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 and the men's room or the ladies' room and see whether that one is taken care of. You get an idea. Sure, that is certainly a start. Okay, and then you develop some kind of a theory for what's going on and go from there? Sure. Okay. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We do this, and that has been mentioned in, uh, in indoor air quality uh, um, and, and, and mold investigations. Sure, you, you develop a theory, and I said, hey, wait a second. Is there something? Is there something for real here? Or am I barking up the wrong tree? Is, uh, am, I, am I wasting my time? Uh, so uh, if, if, you know, if somebody were to call me and say, hey, Dieter, I want you to come to my house and uh, take indoor air samples, I just want to know where I stand. And I, um, I said, yeah, do, you have any, do you have any complaints? Are there any smells? Are you coughing? I, whatever. And I said, no, none of the above. I just want to know where I stand. And I said, well, I really don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, exactly. and uh, it, that doesn't make sense to do that. Will I find bacteria? Yes. Will I find mold spores? Yes. Will I find uh, carbon dioxide? Yes. Will I find perhaps very small um, amounts of carbon monoxide? Yes, particularly if you're cooking with a gas stove and so on. There's a little bit there. doesn't do anything to anybody. I sure as hell wouldn't uh, want to waste my time and money to measure that. I, I, yeah, exactly. it's, it's in my house today. I made hot water for my tea this morning. And was the, did I... Did I uh, uh, create a little bit of carbon monoxide? Absolutely. Okay. So we want to so, look at the issues, develop a, a theory or a hypothesis, and then yep. either and test it. Test it, and then uh, if uh, what we'd like to go into, I think we're going to bring uh, someone on later in the year to discuss how to interpret those types of results once you once you have them. And right. uh, absolutely, I think that is a tough one. Okay. And. Yeah, uh, and I said, you know, I look even on indoor air quality uh, issues, I look at the documentation of the threshold limit values. Now, I'm very well aware of the fact that threshold limit values or the permissible exposure limits from OSHA um, were developed for the American worker uh, and, and not for indoor air. But I don't throw away all the information we collected over the last hundred years. I don't know how many... Uh, guinea pigs, rats, and mice we killed to come up with these toxicological indicators. And if I, I go to the documentation, I'm well aware of the fact that the TLVs are for workers, not for indoor air. But the information on the toxicity and the experience with certain chemicals is in the documentation. I'm not suggesting that you should measure concentrations in the house and compare them to the PELs or TLVs. Of course not. In our houses, we have little children, we have old people, and, uh, but the information doesn't change, the interpretation. If there is, let's say, for the industry, for an, a healthy American worker, a, a threshold limit value or a PEL is set at 100 ppm, well, if I were to find 100 ppm of that chemical in a house, I said, wait a second, the red flag goes up. Now, if I find one ppm over there, and I said, well, you know, that can sneak in somewhere. I don't know where it comes from, but I certainly don't have to take uh, to call the undertaker. I may want to investigate where it comes from, particularly if it's a crazy chemical. But um, that, um, that, that, that's how I use them. Okay. Well, the information you, is there. How about if we bring you back for the roundup and uh, we'll go from Oh, there. absolutely. Well, thank you so much no for problem joining at us all. for today's IH Corner. Let's go on to, Absolutely. Uh, before we go to IE Connections, what's news? i got to quickly thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IEQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com 
Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. leader of men are you with us i am with you how are you today joe great great glenn good to have you what's news mr Feldman? well i'm going to give you a couple uh stories out of this month's issue of indoor environment connections Uh, i'm going to talk to you about some other things that are on my mind and then take a look at what we have coming up in december so let's start off and talk about a couple of the top stories in our november newspaper which uh probably most readers have received or it's coming in their mailbox this week. Uh, one of the top stories written by Tom Scarlett is about the GAO report that has come out about indoor environments. Um, the Government uh, Accountability Office, which is the investigative arm of Congress, has concluded that while current federal research activities on indoor mold address important health-related issues to varying degrees, these activities are largely uncoordinated uh, within a, and across the government agencies, and it makes them much less effective than they could be. I think people in the indoor environmental issue, have probably, indoor environment uh, community, have probably seen that. Um, the uh, GAO says that as a result, the public may not be sufficiently aware of the health risks they and their family members are facing due to, for instance, mold exposure specifically. Uh, the report's title, Indoor Mold, Better Coordination of the Research on Health Effects and More Consistent Guidance, uh, can be found at the GAO website, which is gao.gov. Uh, it's been in the works for more than two years. It was commissioned by Senator Edward Kennedy, uh, who chairs the Senate Committee on Health Issues. Now, uh, political observers are saying that with uh, Democrats having now increased their Senate majority and, of course, taken the White House, that this report is likely to be much more relevant next year than it would have otherwise been. That's Some of the uh, interesting points from the, the study, um, it points out the fact that there's no uniform standards for mold. Although federal agencies are engaged in a number of efforts that address indoor mold, there's no federal or generally accepted health-based standards for safe, le- safe levels of mold in the air or on surfaces. And according to the EPA, the lack of federal regulation of airborne con- concentrations of molds is largely due to the insufficiency of data needed to establish a defensible health-based standard. There are 65 ongoing federal research activities on the health effects of exposure to indoor mold, and they've been conducted by EPA, Health and Human Services, and HUD. And to varying degrees, they uh, address 15 gaps in the scientific data that was reported by the Institute of Medicine in 2004. This is a, uh, a fascinating report for anyone in the indoor environment, and again, you can get that at the GAO website. Some of the other things that they talk about in there that I found interesting is that there's inadequate guidance to the the consumers. Um, For instance, uh, a majority of the documents, of of 32 guidance documents, in fact, that they reviewed from federal agencies, uh, they address mitigating exposure to indoor mold and they give directions for cleaning up mold and protective clothing, but there are huge inconsistencies about which cleaning agents to use, for instance. Some documents recommend using bleach. Uh, some say if the mold growth is due to flood water, then you should only use bleach. Some recommend using bleach regardless of what the issue is, and some say don't use bleach at all, use a detergent instead. And that's within you know, FEMA, EPA, Health and Human Services, HUD, U.S. Uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission. You've got all, the, all that uh, disparity in advice. Yeah, that's kind of so that's drives you crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I teach these courses, and it drives you crazy, Glenn. <laughs> It, it, I get phone calls, you know, uh, at least once a week from somebody. Um, oftentimes it's just a consumer, but they say, you know, I've got this mold problem. I'm going to use bleach. Should I or shouldn't I? Well, I could point to two or three different federal agencies that might say yes or no, or maybe. 
it is frustrating. Yes, it and, is. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Now let's move on to a, a more positive story, I guess, in terms of public health and safety. A new New York law has been passed. It's been signed by the governor of New York, David Patterson, and it requires landlords in the state of New York to notify prospective tenants of contamination on their property. Uh, the bill uh, takes effect, uh, I think, in the next couple of months or next month or two. And uh, property owners would have to tell their tenants uh, the basic facts um, on a form from the Department of Health about contaminants they face, along with a guide on indoor quality and the risks of exposure. Landlords would be fined $500 per violation if they failed to do that. The law, interestingly enough, was um, vetoed by the last two governors of New York, Pataki and Spitzer. Uh, this one came out of an idea because of uh, some some uh, poor people who are not not poor as an economy, but suffering people who were uh, living on some properties that had huge chemical contamination uh, from a chemical spill in the 1970s, and they had no recourse. They were renters, and so this law now protects them and others who rent. Another one that I find very interesting in New York for public health and safety is that Governor Governor Patterson has also signed a law. Um, creates a, um, a cancer mapping law, basically, to create maps overlaying cancer clusters with data about industrial contamination and other potential causes of cancer. That one has me uh, personally very, very curious. I'd love to see how that's going to turn out. Uh, I know for, from my own experience, uh, having family members that have lived in an area that once uh, was a public waste fill, um, there's a lot of cancer in that uh, community. So it's kind of interesting. That's a great, yeah, that's a great issue to bring up, Glenn. I think it's something that maybe isn't touched on enough in when, when we train or work with new indoor environmentalists. You know, what, what exactly was that uh, area you're working in used for before? I'm, I'm very familiar with it because we used to do environmental site assessments, but I don't think it's something that we bring up enough, and I'm glad you did. Yeah, we definitely don't bring it up. Um, Another thing that we don't bring up enough and that I want to talk about next, this isn't in, in our November issue, this is something else that uh, I just wanted to talk about today. I want to talk about cigarette smoking. We don't talk about cigarette smoking in the indoor environments. Back, back in the, the late 80s and early 90s, it was pretty much all we talked about. And now it's just basically assumed, well, you know, there is no more smoking indoors. That, that doesn't happen. People stand outside buildings and smoke. Smoking is an outdoor issue. It's a public health issue wrong. Uh, it's amazing how many parts of this, this country are still debating indoor smoking. Uh, just some headlines out of the last week. These, these have all come out of the last one week. Uh, Mitchell, South Dakota. Area legislators are split on smoking ban legislation. They're looking at a smoking ban, ban but they, they haven't decided whether or not to do it. Um, in Wisconsin, uh, there's a uh, smoking ban statewide that, that went up in smoke last year in the legislature, and it's uh, probably going to come back out again when Democrats take control of the state legislature in January. But here you've got an entire state where, you know, you don't have workplace smoking bans. Hmm. Um, meanwhile, some of the towns in Wisconsin are putting on their own. Uh, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, put a, uh, a smoking ban in place in, in workplaces, and the financial impact is something they're starting to look at. We've seen, you know, what the impact is. Uh, there was a report last week out of Parkersburg, West Virginia, where uh, bar owners and managers were saying that they were down 16% on Fridays and Saturday nights because of their new smoking ban. Well, those those trends have been seen nationwide, but they also have seen that they, they eventually kind of shift back. Um, moving on, in your home state there, Joe, in Pittsburgh, uh, the state has granted an exemption uh, to the smoking ban. This is in the Pittsburgh Tribune last week. There's a list of bars that are exempt uh, from the smoking ban, uh, said uh, a spokesman for your governor, Ed Rendell. So I don't know what you think about that, Joe, but uh, I can, you can still smoke a cigarette in places <laughs> in your state. It's interesting, Glenn. I, I've been spending a lot of time in uh, North Carolina and South Carolina. I used to go down there back in the you know, late 80s and early 90s. I remember being in conference rooms teaching a course, and, and this was at a, a, a hospital, actually, and... I was working with their maintenance guys, and I'd say eight out of ten of them were smoking a cigarette. Uh, and, you know, I was their guest, so it was kind of hard for me to say quit smoking. Now, North Carolina, South Carolina, essentially, you know, where you would consider tobacco country, very few people smoke indoors. I'm pretty sure it's pretty much uh, 
you know, there's laws against indoor smoking pretty much throughout that area. I'm surprised to hear Wisconsin in particular hasn't done anything. So interesting stuff. Well, uh, even in other places I've got uh, right now, and uh, you know, some of them are very recent, in, in, in uh, Hopkins County, Indiana, they've just put a smoking ban in place, and they're going to start enforcing it uh, this week, despite uh, injunctions that some businesses put in place. Uh, uh, in uh, a smoking ban was just approved in Clark County, Kentucky, um, just you know within the last uh, a week or so. In Topeka, they're looking at doing a, a citywide smoking ban, but they don't have one right now. But other cities in Kansas, like Manhattan and Winfield, have recently banned smoking. Uh, even universities are affected. The University of New Mexico is considering an all-out smoking ban on its main campus, but it hasn't done so. I want to stop our smoking discussion by with some news out of Massachusetts. Massachusetts did approve a statewide indoor workplace smoking ban uh, a while ago, and they've just put out a new study that says uh, since they've done that, nearly 600 fewer Massachusetts residents have died from heart attacks each year. Interesting. So there you go. There we go. Glenn, can we bring you back for the roundup? We can, although I have a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, if you can give me one more minute for next, uh, for what's coming in our, our yeah, issue what's, next. What's uh, coming up? Okay. September. Just uh, a real quick, it's our best and worst of the year, our year in review. We, um, we, our editorial board members are going to comment on what they view as the most significant uh, positive and negative things that have happened in the industry. It's a great perspective. We've got Doug Clatter talking about uh, radon. It's been a big year in radon, just not just because of granite countertops, but a lot of other issues. David Governo is doing a legal review for the year. Uh, Derek Denae is doing a, 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 a top indoor environmental issues facing buildings and building owners for the year. But the big news, the biggest news coming out in December is that we're going out with a fully digital edition of Indoor Environment Connection starting in 2009. Okay. January 2009, we're introducing a phenomenal new resource for the industry. Uh, our, it'll be our 10th year of publishing next year. Uh, we have tremendous response to our newspaper. It's, it's you know, very, very well liked, and, and, and we are we're so thankful for that. But we're going to be putting it online in an interactive PDF format in virtually the exact same uh, look that you see on paper. Uh, but the difference will be that you can search for words, you can, uh, you'll have indexing, you'll have a table of contents, you can click on ads, and you can go to the advertisers' websites. And we're still going to print on paper, and we're still going to mail it, but if people want to be super green and reduce their carbon footprint, they can opt out of the mailing and just view it online. There you they can go. also download it and send it to the libraries. So oh. thank you, Joe, for that chance to talk about that, and uh, I'll join you for the roundup. IE Connections going green. All right. Thank you, Glenn. We'll be back in a little bit. Thank you. All right, let's start the second half of uh, our little highlight show here. I've got one that was uh, kind of interesting. I want to go, Glenn had mentioned some uh, legal issues with the smoking bans and so on. Back in, uh, let's see, this would have been show four. We had Michael Green. Michael Green's an attorney down in uh, the Florida area who has uh, quite a bit of experience in the indoor air quality industry and was eight years on the IAQA Board of Directors. At the time, we were talking to him about a case called Gorman, and he also talked to us a little bit about uh, Daubert and Fry, which has been a, an interesting issue over the past year. Let's listen to what Michael had to say. Yes, the Gorman case was one of those cases where, as a lawyer, you in part scratch your head as to where did this come from, um, but resulted from a claim by the Gorman family who uh, sued their home builder, the lumber company had supplied the lumber for the house and other subs. Um, the gist of their claim was that uh, one of their children developed autism as a result of exposure to mold in the house. Um, the case did not go to trial, but there was a settlement which was widely publicized in which the Gormans uh, settled their case for a total of $22.6 million approximately 13 million of which came from the lumber company. Um, from a lawyer's perspective, and we all know that there's certain health issues um, associated with mold that are absolutely scientifically proven. There's no doubt about the allergen effect, the fact that mold can be an asthma trigger, and that for um, certain people, uh, mold such as uh, aspergillus can be a pathogen, can really kill them if they have immune system problems. The uh, issue uh, of autism is tied to the 
anecdotal claims of neurological problems. In fact, that was first raised in the Ballard case uh, from about five years ago. Uh, but this is the first one I'm aware of where a, a link between autism has been alleged. The, the hard part from that case from a lawyer's perspective to understand is that um, medical evidence is scientific evidence. To get scientific evidence in court, it has to meet a certain standard. And I'm going to highly paraphrase what the standard is, but generally it must be, commonly, it must be a theory commonly accepted in the scientific community meaning it's gone through uh, appropriate scientific method testing to show there is a link. Da is that uh, what they would call Daubert? That, that's the, okay. in some states it's the Daubert case uh, rule that's followed. In some other cases, other states like Florida, we follow the Fry case, F-R-Y-E, okay. which is similar. Um, and uh, we, uh, the judge acts sort of as the gatekeeper to decide whether the science is there or not. Um, uh, right now, I would say there really isn't enough science to show a link with autism, and there's still developing science on the neurological side in general. So um, one of the mysteries to us is why the home builder and lumber company would settle for such a large amount. And two, why, why didn't they get a confidentiality agreement, which certainly for a client who's going to settle something, we wouldn't want it advertised that they're running checks to people. Uh, because that then makes them a bigger target. But um, as a result of them not doing that, we're now aware of uh, this case, so all not a legal precedent since it wasn't a judgment awarded, but a settlement. It has created, uh, in effect, a, uh, a claim precedent that people see that you can make this kind of claim. The personal injury lawyers see that this claim may have some validity, at least to sustain it for a settlement. And so uh, a lot of lawyers have been re-energized by the health claims again. Okay. Let's move fast forward to David Governor on show number 78. We're going to talk a little bit more about legal issues. But let me go to another legal issue, David. I know you had commented on this, and it was that there was a an Ohio couple awarded a $2.2 million compensatory damage award, and it was based on their um, use of the Ohio Consumer Practices Act, and that they claimed there were unfair and deceptive practices that occurred when they bought this home that had become moldy. Do you see that as um, something that we'll see more of now that they've been successful on this particular case? Well, it's, it's possibly. The, the law itself is dependent on the, the law in the, various, in, the, in the particular jurisdiction that you're in. A lot of states have enacted consumer protection statutes aimed at balancing the playing field between, um, you know, uh, people who are selling things. Typically, you end up, it, it affects people like car salesmen. That's the typical consumer product case. But we have an imbalance of uh, power between somebody selling something and somebody buying something. The government has stepped in and set up some special rules called consumer protection statutes that give uh, uh, plaintiffs who are, uh, believe that they were harmed by, as a consumer some special um, deals. And the special deal often includes, um, an first off, a lot of these statutes have an opportunity to settle so that they try to get the parties together to come. You know, you, the consumer makes a demand whatever it is, $10,000 to fix the leaky roof. The builder comes back and says, you know, forget it, it doesn't leak, or it wasn't our fault. Then then if they, the consumer has to fight that battle, the consumer could possibly win two or three times the actual damages and uh, his or her attorney's fees as a result of a successful prosecution. It just depends on a particular statute. It could well um, be a trend. Because, you know, as, as advocates for our clients, we try to take every step possible to get them the best deal. And as an advocate for a consumer buying a house that something went wrong with, you know, that lawyer is going to look to get that person the most money possible. So I think it's impossible that you could have a trend in using consumer protection laws. Part of the legal issue is how broadly these things can be uh, applied. 
And, you know, obviously in Ohio, you've got uh, buying a house is buy, is, as a consumer uh, triggers that statute. So that's an interesting topic that we'll be following a lot more closely, whether or not some of these uh, statutes with the consumer protection laws are going to be used as a way of uh, recovering damages for homeowners and others that uh, have buildings that are causing them issues. Let's go on to another clip. I'm, I'm running a little short on time. I've got some great clips left here, but i got to go to one of my favorites. This is Mac Pierce. Uh, Mac is a mycologist out of the great north Bacteria have to be cultured to, in order to identify them. They're too small to look at in the microscope and know which one they are. You have to culture them and see what they'll grow on and see what their nutritional requirements are. I've read somewhere that we can culture about 1% of all the bacteria in our own bodies and 1% of the ones we find in the soil outdoors as well. So we're just scratching the surface of that kingdom. What we do know is that the bacteria outnumber and outweigh all the other organisms on Earth. They actually, the number of bacteria in your body can outnumber the cells in your body. You're, you're, you're alive. <laughs> you're, you're a zoo. <laughs> it's interesting, Mac. I had dinner at uh, the local lodge last night, and a retired MD heard me talking a little bit about environmental and came over and you know we got into some discussion on uh, staff and MRSA and he was telling me how you know we had to have staff on our body and uh, I can't remember what the purpose was it had something to do with um, giving the skin flexibility or something along those lines are you familiar with that at all well, the bacteria have an immensely constructive role to play in our bodies. There's a, without the coliform bacteria, you know, you hear E. coli mentioned like it's a bad actor. Coliform bacteria are vital for our nutrition. They're living in your colon, and they're sucking out your food supply, but they're also processing some of the foods and releasing vitamins and providing nutrition for your body. So coliform bacteria are good unless you get a bad one. Some of these coliform bacteria, they're, they're naughty cousins that live on the wrong side of the tracks. They get into your body and they cause your colon to bleed out and people die from bloody diarrhea or from septic shock from being enormously over-colonized. What you get a lot of times with these infections is you get a bacterium that's harmless in its own place getting put into the wrong sector. And a good way to get a bacteria in the wrong place, a bacterium or bacteria is plural, to get it in the wrong place is to make a surgical cut in somebody's body. So surgical wounds are vitally dangerous because when you've got like you're getting a hip replacement done normal harmless environmental bacteria shed by the surgeon drifting off their face or you know off their skin can wind up floating down and landing in the hip replacement way down deep in the joint your body doesn't have immune defense down there you the body doesn't expect to see invasive bacteria getting down that deep doesn't anticipate that a surgical wound so you wind up having a harmless bacterium culturing down there in the joint and wind up creating an infection just because there's no way to get rid of it, and just more and more of it proliferates in the wrong place, creates a nuisance. That's the same with yeasts that are a normal part of the, the, the flora of the skin. When they get inside in different places, they can become a real nuisance. So it's just everything in its right place and right time. you got to love Mac. You're a zoo. <laughs> okay. Hey, let's move on to the roundup, folks. I didn't realize we're getting a little over, but uh, let's go to the roundup and then stick around. I've got one more great clip, uh, and I want to play that at the very end. We got uh, Dr. Dieter and Glenn Feldman back on the line. Any quick final comments, guys? Let's go with Dieter first. Well, I, go ahead, well, Dieter. I have, a, I have a comment. Why the heck did you have to play Max Clipman before I get my knee replacement? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dieter. <laughs> uh, but in fact, I, I would say uh, what would be a good idea is to get Mac back. I mean, I think he's wonderful. He, he, he is knowledgeable. He can present uh, very difficult things in a very funny and, 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 and nice way. 
Uh, no doubt about this. I'm also and, going to bring uh, a, uh, another CIH on here real soon. Wayne Baker is going to come in and help us out with the IH corner in the real near future. Oh, that will be fine. That will be fine. I have one thing, and I got caught on that years ago, and that is a warning to anybody who does uh, 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 litigation stuff and so on. The uh, NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, which is basically the research arm of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, they had a definition. They had a, a they, they coined a word. It's called IDLH, immediately dangerous to life and health concentrations in air. I mean, that sounds terrible. In other words, you know, you get one whiff of it and you are dead. Absolutely not. People sometimes. Uh, mentioned these concentrations that oh the, the the IDLH is blah 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 you know, you got to watch out and uh, there's a longer paragraph and I make that very short IDLH immediately dangerous to life and health concentrations represent the maximum concentration from which in the event of respirator failure one could escape within 30 minutes without a respirator and without experiencing any escape impairing or irreversible health effects. I think that is a lousy word that they chose, immediately dangerous to, well, I think that's <laughs> to a life great, and health. That's a great topic, though, Dieter. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've, been, I've been playing with this for years now, and I said, guys, Immediately dangerous to life and health is the wrong word for what it is. It has only something to do with respirators, nothing with worker or home exposure or any of that. Right. So uh, keep that one in mind. And I was reading from the Pocket Guide to Chemical Hazards published by NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational uh, Safety and Health. And I, 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 this is also available. It's publication number 90-117. And that is, uh, I'm pretty from, from NIOSH in Cincinnati. I'm pretty sure that is available on uh, CD today. Great. Thanks for joining us again, Dieter. Always a pleasure. Oh, anytime. All right. Let's go to uh, Glenn. Any final comments, Glenn? I do have a final comment. It's not really related to anything we talked about today, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Dow today hit a low of uh, 7,450 uh, earlier this morning. Mm. Nobody ever dreamed it would drop. They thought the bottom was 800. Uh, now it's, you know, where's the bottom? 8,000. So, you know, you're starting. It, it, it apparently wasn't 8,000, and okay. it wasn't 7,500. Wow. Um, but in any event, you, you know, people are starting to, to really um, obviously be very, very concerned as well they should. But I just want to keep. Um, Keep perspective on things and encourage those out there who uh, who do have money to, to, to keep spending their money and to keep investing in their companies and to keep working hard and doing the things they need to do. Uh, we can't, uh, well, I can't forget what the, the, the phrase that Bob Baker used recently, but uh, we, I, you know, is we can't go into the fetal position. That's what it was. There we have go. to be realistic. But if everybody goes into the fetal position and everybody stops spending money, things just get worse and worse. So be, be prudent, but then again, uh, you know, don't don't put hide yourself in a closet. Actually, now's probably a good time to make a few uh, if you're looking for some equipment or etc. You know, you could probably find some darn good deals out there. So uh, there's there's some, there's some people who are offering some great deals out there. I mean, if you can get the financing for it, there's some phenomenal purchases to be made. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. As always, Glenn, we appreciate having you on, and uh, we'll see you back in in a couple weeks, I guess. Great show, Joe. Congratulations. Talk Thank to you, you later. All right. All right. I had uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, before everybody goes, I want to first of all let everyone know we are going to take a little Thanksgiving break next Friday. Um, we're not going to be here. We will be back Friday, December 5th. We're working on a, a, a really good show for December 5th. I haven't gotten final confirmation yet, but uh, you hang in there with us. In fact, the whole month of December, I've got a, a bang-up bang lineup here, so... We're really looking forward to December. And uh, before we go, I want to say thanks, of course, to the wingman, Chris Boisel, our technical director, our growing group of loyal listeners. 
We're going to play one more clip from Mike O'Reilly, who had uh, met, uh, unfortunately passed away this week, but we want to remember him with uh, some real words of wisdom, I think. And uh, Mike had talked to us on an earlier show about misting, one of my kind of pet peeves, and that uh, misting was uh, mm, frowned upon in one of the earlier versions of the S520. I think we're finally seeing that change. I don't know that all the research has been done, all the evidence is in, but uh, Mike was on top of this a couple years back, and I'd like to finish with that and also with saying thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll see you back here again Friday, December 5th at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Well, I strongly believe that it's a tool that that uh, should be used. Uh, it, it, you know, again here, engineering controls are, are very important, uh, and and the type of misting. You know, it, when when we talk misting, we're not talking bringing a hose into a work area and wetting um, material down. It's uh, misting if you're directing it at an asbestos contractor. Uh, generally, would would be the use of an airless sprayer, uh, where you can, uh, the, you know, you can control the dust um, to to practically zero with very very little liquid, and and if you have enough air movement, uh, you're drying the air as quickly as you're you're misting, and and uh, I don't I wouldn't do a job without uh, without misting to tell you the truth. It would be very rare. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 